You listen to this podcast because you like books, or maybe because you like learning, or maybe you just like the sound of my voice lulling you to sleep. If it's the first two, Audible has you covered. Too busy to read? Driving and don't want to run into another dog? Audible has a huge library of audiobooks where people read to you like you're a kid again. And guess what? You can try it out for free. Just go to readlearnlivepodcast.com slash audible to sign up for your free trial today. When you put that much of yourself onto anything um, and electronic devices will not only hold uh, like our words, our conversations, our knowledge, but they'll also uh, be able to sort of reflect us because you can customize them to make it however you like it. When you put that much of yourself into a thing, you develop a sort of relationship to it. And that's, that's a large part of why Althea is so attached to the Anaki. Hello and welcome to Read, Learn, Live, the podcast about improving yourself through literature. I'm your acclaimed host, John Monaster, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 22. As a reminder, if you have ideas for books you'd like to see featured or have authors you want to put me in touch with, you can reach me at jon at readlearnlivepodcast.com. Today, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with C.A. Higgins about her book, Lightless. C.A. Higgins writes novels and short stories. She was a runner-up in the 2013 Dell Magazines Award for Undergraduate Excellence in Science Fiction and Fantasy Writing and has a BA in Physics from Cornell University. She lives in Brooklyn, New York. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. All right, hello everyone and welcome to the Read, Learn, Live podcast. I am your host, John Monaster. Really excited to be here today to talk about Lightless by C.A. Higgins. Um, you can call me Caitlin. All right, Caitlin. Caitlin, say hello to everyone. Hi, everyone. Hooray. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited to have Caitlin on. I read her wonderful book, Lightless, the first book in a trilogy, and I thought it was great. And uh, like that, like I always uh, have everyone start off with, Caitlin, why don't you tell us, uh, tell us about the book? Summarize it for us. Um, it's a sci-fi novel that's set on a top-secret military spaceship called the Anaki. Um, and the crew of the Anaki, which is only three people, realize that two strangers have boarded them. And one of them escapes, but he does something to the computer before he goes. And the other one they capture, and they find out that he has some connections to a terrorist who may or may not be planning an attack on their government. And so it's a race against time to fix the computer, find out whatever the first um, intruder did to it, and to find out what this second man, the captive man, knows. Right. And, uh, yeah, that's that's why I think the book was so interesting. It intertwined these two stories and uh, made me sweat a little bit. But <laughs> so <laughs> I always like to start off with a couple questions about the writing process before we get into the, the book itself, because uh, I think it's really interesting. So... I'm really curious about the genesis of, of a book in general when I when I speak with an author, and I'm really curious about why you decided to write this book. Where where was the origin for the story? Um, the origin of the story was a thermodynamics class I was taking in college because I studied physics before I ran off to join the circus. Um, and 
in the class we were talking about isolated systems um, and the thermodynamics of how that system evolves. And because I have something of a fanciful mind, I saw the particles in the box sort of as people. And when you make the room smaller, the people freak out and start hitting the walls. When you make it cold, the people sort of go still and huddle up. And, of course, throughout all of that, entropy increases and the disorder increases. And so I thought if you had a group of characters in a room essentially isolated, which is the spaceship, the Anaki, and they've got all these conflicts between them, how do those conflicts evolve in that sort of isolation? Hmm. Yeah, that, and that's exactly what happens, right? You, you see the, <laughs> through the course of the book, there's the character dynamics are really what, what I think makes the, the story so interesting, and that's what I want to get into later. Um, so wh while you, so you, you came to this realization, so what was your writing process like? How did you actually sit down and turn that into the finished book? I write and rewrite and write outlines um, very rigidly. So I'll write an outline first, and I'll outline as in-depth as, in as I can. And then I will write, and then I will stop, and I will reread it and see that it's terrible. And then I'll re-outline it using what I learned from how bad it was the first time, and then I'll rewrite it. And then I'll just keep doing that until I have a draft that I am comfortable enough with to send to one of the people who I have read it first, which, and every time I rewrite the story, I use more of the text from the previous version. So by the end of it, I've got the same text, but I'm just moving scenes around or fixing little bits of dialogue and propping up subplots and that kind of thing. But I do mm. re-outline and rewrite every single time. So you're, so it's just like a constant process of rewriting. Like you're, you're almost, you're almost never satisfied with, your, what you've originally put down on paper. Like yeah. you understand it's not perfect. It's usually terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's an important realization that's sometimes hard. So that's interesting that you seem so comfortable with it. Well, what's uh, what's great is that nobody needs to see the early drafts. Ah. So you can just keep working on it and then show it to a few people who you trust who still have to love you even after they've read it, like your close friends or your family. Mm -hmm. um, and then they'll tell you, if it sucks or not, if you're right or not, and then you try to fix it. So it's it's all about uh, fixing things and making it better. Sounds good. So you seem like you've got that part down. Did you run into any big obstacles, or do you feel like there was anything particularly difficult about writing this book? Um, this was the second book I'd ever finished. Uh, the first one is going to die unpublished on my hard drive as it should. <laughs> but so there were challenges with that because yeah. it was only the second time I'd ever done it. And something that, uh, a lot of this book is dialogue, mm -hmm. which was not the easiest thing for me. And so a lot of the difficulty was in creating scenes that were interesting and dynamic and had a lot of subtext going on, but not so much subtext that the reader didn't know it was happening. Um, and so especially the scenes between Ivan and Ida, which are just pages of conversation, essentially, in an empty room, were challenging. And I ended up outlining those in such detail that sometimes the outline was longer than the actual scene 
because mm. I'd write what what the character means to say. I'd write the subtext of that. I'd write a little like why they're saying that, and then I'd write what the other characters taking from it, and then I'd write what they're actually saying. Um, and then when I went to actually write the scene, I had that very detailed blueprint and went into it. But that was um, it was a fun challenge, but it was definitely a challenge. Yeah, and I wonder the extent to which you had to, or you explained that to your friends that were kind of cold readers, right? Like, did you say, hey, pay attention to this part because this was the toughest part for me? Or did you just kind of give it to them and see if they were able to pick up on what was happening without getting too bored or, you know, fi finding that kind of Goldilocks zone? Uh, pretty much what happened was I said, I wrote a book. Can you read it? <laughs> and then I emailed it to them in that very email in which I said, I wrote a book. Can you read it? And that was... Uh, Everyone reads for different things, mm -hmm. um, and my opinion is that in at least certain situations, telling someone what to read for is going to make them pay more attention to it than they otherwise would, which is not necessarily the most organic reaction, mm -hmm. um, and therefore not necessarily the most helpful to me. Um, one of the people who I have read for me is my mother, who is also an author, um, and we write very similarly. And so with my mother, when I send her a manuscript, I'll say, look, I think, you know, I screwed up on this subplot or this section of the book. I think the tension's off or I'm not sure that this relationship is convincing. And so mm -hmm. I'll tell her because she thinks the same way I do. Um, and so there's a certain there's a certain synchronicity there. But someone who does not think the way I do, I want to know how their brain that's not mine reacts to the text, and I don't want to ruin that by telling them, this is exactly what I want you to give me feedback right. on. So, because maybe the thing that I have a think is wrong is not actually what they're going to identify as a problem. Yeah. Yeah, they might not notice, or they, may not, they might say, that part is great. Exactly. That's Yeah, that's always the fun part. So kind of getting a bit further into that, you know, there are definitely times where readers might be surprised by something in your text. Was there a time when you were particularly surprised by something you wrote, either a direction the story took or just something that kind of came into existence uh, while you were putting the book together? Um, because I'm such a, a plotter instead of a mm -hmm. pantser, if I'm surprised by a plot thing, uh, then that's usually a sign that something has gone horribly, horribly wrong uh -huh. in my writing. So I'm not usually surprised once I've started writing by plot things. But um, something that I found very interesting in writing this book that I would not necessarily have anticipated beforehand was the the sort of tension between the way the point of view character, Ida, feels about Ivan and the way that the reader uh feels about Ivan which you start off with Ida as your point of view character so you naturally sort of empathize with her um, and then what Ida's saying and what Ida's seeing is not necessarily what the reader's seeing and they start a sort of slow uh, dovetail and that I found something that was fun to play with the uh, the sympathy for Ivan if there is any and how that changes and how Ida does not react to that in necessarily the same way someone else would. Um, and how the, what that says about Ida as a person and how that causes the reader to react to Ida. So that was something that I enjoyed a lot and that I would not necessarily have expected to hmm. be playing with. Hmm. 
So you you referenced this before, but I'm gonna this is the one time I'm gonna get you uh, a physics related question, which is <laughs> which is what is entropy and and why is it so important to your book? You've got these little descriptions at the beginning of the different chapters. You talk about different laws of thermodynamics. Entropy later proves to be very important. So what why maybe just a quick entropy you know <laughs> summary if that's a possible primer on and, entropy. and how that connected to the book as a whole um so entropy is uh, a measure of the disorder of a system um the different how many different states can that system exist in and what was uh what was interesting to me about the setup on this ship was that it starts out in this stable situation where you have the captain who's demission you have the scientist gagnon you have the mechanic althea and they all work together. There's a clear line of command, and they know what they're doing, and they know their place. And then you introduce these other two characters, and then later Ida herself, who arrives after the two intruders do. And that starts to disrupt that stability. And so as that stability is disrupted, it becomes less certain how these relationships are going to shake out, and also more chaotic the ways that the characters interact with each other which is much more interesting than a mm -hmm. strictly ordered relationship between characters and so it all came down to that idea of the characters are people in a box are um, particles in a box mm -hmm. and when you have particles in a box you can't make entropy decrease you can keep it the same or it'll increase and that's an inevitable consequence of just the way the universe evolves is that disorder always increases and so I, I was interested to sort of look at that in the small small spectrum of the ship and the people on it yeah and so you alluded to kind of the government beforehand um, and so I you know it's known in the book as the system maybe start off by talking about what the system is in your own your own mind um, so the system obviously got its name from uh, from three different things. One is that uh, it's the solar system. It's the government of the entire solar system, and you just drop solar. Uh, another is that uh, if you have particles in a box, you call that the system. It's the system of particles. So it's a physics term. Um, and it's also, of course, a computer science term, um, you know, a computer system. And those things are all interconnected in the book. Um, so the system is the government, and it's this force of extreme order. It keeps everybody in very strict positions. It has constant surveillance, so it makes sure that no one can go out of line. Um, and so you've got the system as the symbol of ultimate order on one hand, and then you have these revolutionaries um, whose identities you don't know at the beginning of the novel. You just know that somehow they're connected to the intruders who are a system of who are representative of utter chaos or entropy. And it's the conflict between those two things. Mm. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of discussion in the book about the idea of obedience. And Althea has qualms constantly about, <laughs> you know, kind of who, who the right person to obey is. You know, she's got Domitian, then she's got the captain, she's got Ida, who's this higher level representative but she doesn't know her very well. Um, and, you know, she kind of wants the ship. She she considers the ship hers, and she wants to take care of that, and and she wants to take care of the ship. And so 
there's a lot of confusion there, I think, for her. Um, but when thinking about Domitian, th- that is a character who there's like no confusion for. No. <laughs> like he is just locked into the system. He knows like whatever the system says is right. Mm-hmm. If they don't say it, it's, you know, if they say not to do it, that's what's right. I mean, it's very clear for him. He has a very clear sense of right and wrong. And I thought that was very interesting because I think that's not necessarily something that that we experience, at least I experience. You know, I, I, I at least don't have like that level of obedience to mm-hmm. to anybody, I think. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I guess it's never been tested that much, but... <laughs> I'm just curious to think about about him, and so like how how is how did he get to that point? How has this obedience influenced his life, and how does that play out in the book? Um, so Domitian really likes law and order. Um, he's got a very set view of right and wrong, like you said, um, and of course that right and wrong may n- his concept of right and wrong may not actually correspond to what objective right of right and wrong is if there is an objective right and wrong um certainly doesn't correspond to what other characters in the book think of as right and wrong um but he he's willing to bend the rules a little bit for althea but he's not willing to break them um and so there's a all the characters fall on a spectrum Mm -hmm. of uh sort of orderliness or uh, from the other perspective on the on a spectrum of chaoticness. And Domitian is far on the orderly side. And you've got uh, Ida, who's not necessarily quite so orderly, and Ivan, who's pretty chaotic. And then you've got Althea, who's sort of torn in the middle. And so as for how Domitian came to be that way, he grew up in the system, and he's actually benefited by it He's, you know, he's not from Earth, but he's got command of this hyper, hyper valuable vessel, the Anaki. And so because he's benefited from this sort of order, he's naturally sort of a proponent of it. Um, Mm -hmm. And also just the way that he thinks and feels as a person is he likes the order. He likes chain of command. He likes a very particular structure of power which power is very important for the characters in the books in the books yeah in all three of them and their relationships with each other and Domitian represents a certain perspective of power and order and do you feel like you modeled that on anyone in real life or is that is that kind of such an extreme that you think that's not something that oh, is I really something we see I don't think it's an extreme at all I think it's mm. um I think it's definitely plausible uh, i think the the system itself is obviously a dystopia more extreme than we see now thankfully but i don't think that Domitian's attitude towards it is at all uncommon even mm. today uh, but i didn't model him on anyone in particular okay no outing anyone no 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 outing anyone okay their secrets are safe uh, yeah, so you also alluded to this point, which is the idea of mass surveillance. And mass surveillance is everywhere with the system. They have cameras on you 24-7 everywhere you go. There's no privacy even where you live. You know, everyone, it's just a fact of life. And this plays in the book in many different ways. Um, I, I guess I was just curious to hear how you thought about this 
you know, I'm assuming you you thought about the idea of mass surveillance. You know, you were super organized. So I'm sure you thought about <laughs> it before before you started writing. So how did that influence the characters, and how do you think it affects us more generally? Because it's definitely a reference to how much more surveilled we are now than we ever have been, and maybe it's a little bit harder to tell that the cameras aren't necessarily there. Or at mm. least we hope maybe they're not there, but there's definitely a lot of surveillance happening right now to us. And I'm just curious both how that affects characters in the book and then maybe us more broadly. Um, so for the characters in the book, it's uh, it's about paranoia and privacy. Mm-hmm. And the, the slow dissolution of the order on the ship is corresponds very closely with the fact that when uh, Maddie, who's the one uh, intruder who messed with the computer and escaped, uh, Matthew Gale, when he does something to the Anaki's computer, it affects the cameras on board. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly these characters who are used to being constantly watched have these moments, these uncertain moments when they are not witnessed. Um, and so uh, this sort of structure that they have been maintaining starts to break down um and each of the characters has been affected differently by the constant surveillance for Domitian. it's you know he's it's fine it's fine with him he's got that sort of nothing to hide thing because of course the system works very well for him for ida it's you could almost argue beneficial to the rest of society because it sort of keeps in check some of her worser instincts that might otherwise have free reign and so she has to find other ways to express that um for althea um, there's a moment in the book where she's getting undressed, um, she's getting changed, and she starts to, you know, dress rapidly because she's used to covering her nudity immediately because there's always cameras, and then she realizes the cameras are not on, um, and so she can take off her clothes more sh- slowly, uh, which sounds sexier than it is, but it's <laughs> really not, um, but there's sort of that moment of not realizing how deeply ingrained the lack of freedom has been in her until the moment when it's been removed. Um, And then continuing to move down the spectrum, there's Ivan, who was, his father was a revolutionary who failed. And so Ivan grew up under such intense surveillance that he uh, attempted suicide and then ran away. And then became an outlaw along with uh, Maddie. And so the again there's a spectrum of the way the surveillance has affected them how it's given them this constant level of deception between the characters most obviously with ivan but even uh althea has to use coded language when she wants to talk to Domitian about something she thinks the system will not approve of necessarily even if she's not certain they won't approve of it and of course the cameras are still on the ship and even if the system's not watching, something else may be. Mm-hmm. So it's about uh, restraint again um, and how order is sort of kept by a loss of freedom and the ways in which that has affected the characters. Um, and uh, in a way, it's sort of like, uh, you know, uh, if you were raised really religious uh, and you do something bad, even if it's tiny and bad, you're like, shit, God can always see me. Oh, God. Mm. Oh, God. Like, he, he knows, and there's right. like, guilt. Um, and so there's a certain degree of that, because divinity, of course, is also a big theme of the book. 
um, both for the system and for whatever else may be watching through the cameras. So there's that. Um, and what's in the book is more is far more extreme than, you know, real life because we don't live in that kind of dystopia. But the idea that you could be watched, that your words could be recorded, that what goes on the internet never goes away, uh, makes people act in strange ways. Mm-hmm. In some ways it restrains them, in some ways it makes them lash out. And I don't know, I found that kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so let's talk about Althea. So she's she's quite an interesting character. She's the ship's mechanic. And she's the one that is tasked with fixing the ship as the ship gets weirder and weirder and weirder <laughs> and just all manner of, of uh, you know, it's, it's attacking crew and just things are breaking down, lights are flashing, just uh, odd things are happening. You know, and she was a big part. I, I seemed she, she built the ship or she was a part of building the ship? She was a part of building the ship. Um, she... Uh, she could not have built the ship all on her own because it's too big an endeavor um, mm-hmm. and she's too young to have been there from its very beginning. But she was a major part of building the ship and um, knows the ship, not only not only its software, but also its hardware. So she sees it sort of as her creation. Yeah, uh, which is very important for later in the book. But, you know, I, she really... She really loves the ship and believes in it, and that's that's the lens that she connects to, I think, or that's you know, that's that's the way she connects to everything. That's the way she deals with all the other characters. So I really think she's a case where she is she's chosen the machine. She, <laughs> she like her friend is the machine. She, yes. she connects to the machine, and I think that that again is something that we are starting to see now. Mm-hmm. You know, in the, in the sense that people start to connect with their devices and start to, and, and we're getting, you know, we're getting verbal feedback from our devices. P- things are talking to us. And so we're starting to develop these kinds of connections. And, and I guess I was wondering, you know, what you thought about that. Is that a benign thing and, and no big deal? In Al- Althea's case, was it, did it ultimately help or hurt her character? And, you know, where do you think this this all is going, that connection between humans and machines? Um, that's uh, an interesting question that might be beyond my, my predictive ability, but I will admit that I frequently have arguments with the GPS out loud um, as if it can hear me and respond. Mm-hmm. So for Althea in particular, she is she has a a bit of an orderly mind, which is why she initially at least um, works reasonably well within the system. um, And that orderly mind manifests as her interest in machines. Um, She loves that ship in a way that humanizes it beyond what it initially is, which is just machinery and software Mm -hmm. um, in a way that, we obviously do now everyone or not everyone i like to think everyone because this is true of me um is attached to their iphone if they have one in a way that is beyond i'm revealing way too much about my attachment to my iphone i love my iphone (laughs) it's too late i love it so much i love it so much it's part of me but um when you put that much of yourself onto anything um and 
electronic devices will not only hold uh, like our words, our conversations, our knowledge, but they'll also uh, be able to sort of reflect us because you can customize them to make it however you like it. When you put that much of yourself into a thing, you develop a sort of relationship to it. And that's, mm -hmm. that's a large part of why Althea is so attached to the Inaki. Um, and in terms of what that does for her <laughs> is not, I mean, there's different ways of looking at it. In one way, it gives her life a certain purpose that uh, if there was no Anaki, what would be her purpose? What does she mm. care about? That's she cares about Anaki in the same way that um, in the same way that Ivan cares about, say, Matty, who's the other um, intruder. Which is, it's great that you have this connection, but is it worth everything that happens to you and everyone around you um, because of that connection? Mm -hmm. So, not necessarily the best possible end for Althea, but at the same time, what other end could she, what other path could she have been on? Yeah. I mean, I think the connection that she has with the, the Anake's computer is maybe even more intense. I mean, you, you put a, that was, that was a good point you made about the connection we have to our phones. In this case, the ship is literally controlling their lives, right? Like there's uh, several times when they're worried about the air being cut out or the lights being <laughs> off forever yes. or whatever, you know? So it's like, it's, it's like, what if your iPhone controlled, you know, your ability to live? Like you would, you would even more have that connection. So I think that's possibly a degree of worshipfulness too. Like right. you're going to, you're going to yeah. want to appease that thing. So it doesn't, you know, I yell at the printer when it stops working, but if the printer not working meant that I couldn't breathe, I would be sweet talking that printer a lot more than I was yelling at it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, and to kind of jump back a bit, you, you know, you have, we talked a little bit about entropy, and you have lots of interesting little asides. I think, especially at the beginning of chapters, you're, you're kind of fond of in, in throwing in some, <laughs> some really interesting uh, in thoughts, and I thought that was great. And one of the ones I liked the most was you compared physics being the study of energy to humans being the same with all human interactions being nothing more than the flow of power from one to another, from one person to another. So I thought that was very interesting, and, and it felt like you were basing that upon observation or, or theory or, or, some, or some, something that you had had kind of fermenting in your mind. Was there, was there a particular time you can talk about where you saw an interaction go like this? Um, I, I mean, this is one of the rare times in the book where I entirely agree with Ida, who is the one who says that about powder, about about powder about power mm -hmm. um i think all relationships are like that um even pleasant ones um there doesn't have to be uh unpleasantness for there to be an exchange of power um and it's in obvious situations like you know with your boss there's a power dynamic you know with your parents um if you have employees um uh with with the lover obviously there's a certain degree of power based on um on level of interest a lot of the time, mm -hmm. but even, you know, I'm on the subway in the morning, there's a power in my interaction with those people around me. If you bump into somebody, um, that's an exertion of power against their personal space. Um, and you know, you apologize to mitigate that because, 
I mean, all those politeness rituals are really just ways of managing the power dynamics. Um, so I feel like there isn't one particular instance where I would say that was something I witnessed. That's just something that I believe is true of all interactions. Mm. And hopefully that's the only time I agree with Ida in this book. <laughs> yeah. We'll get to Ida in a sec. So we've got <laughs> Ivan, because I want to I talk about Ivan. Ivan yes. is the guy that didn't get away and is the subject of interrogation during the course of the book. He's this, like you said, he's this revolutionary... He, his father was a revolutionary, but he failed. Ivan tried to commit suicide, ran away, kind of just has led a crazy life and, <laughs> you know, snuck onto this ship and got caught. And now he's just stuck in this white room being interrogated. But it's, it's just, it's not that easy. You know, a lot, of the, a lot of the book is this back and forth between Ida and Ivan, but also between Althea and Ivan, there's a kind of interesting relationship. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's obvious throughout the book that he's, he's this very kind of charismatic, um, charming, good-looking person. And then he manipulates people because of that. Uh, I'm just interested to know how, how the crew deals with this. Because I, I think it's very interesting to see how people respond to a person like that. Because I think that says a lot about everybody else. And I think everyone on the ship responded very differently. Like the way that Domitian dealt with him, especially towards the end, was very different than Althea or even Ida had dealt with him earlier in the book. Mm -hmm. So I was just curious about how the crew dealt with Ivan and what that says about the crew and maybe then broadening that to to our society when when we have people like that, when we see people like that around us, how do we often respond? Um... Ivan is a ton of fun. Um, He was probably my favorite character to write through all three books. Um, And he's especially fun in this book, or perhaps fun is the wrong word. He was fun to me, the writer who likes to watch the characters suffer, because of the very power dynamics that he's involved in, Mm -hmm. where he is literally chained to a chair in the middle of an empty room by people who make it very clear to him that they could shoot him at any moment and wouldn't feel bad about it. Um, and at one point, even they just cut off his shirt because they need to put um, uh, like lie detector stuff on him, which is just, it's for the psychological horror of it. And yet he has an enormous amount of power on the ship because of his knowledge and because of his ability to read the people around him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he very quickly picks up on what the other characters want and what their triggers are. Mm -hmm. And so when he interacts with them, it's all with his own goals. And so with uh, the three characters he primarily interacts with are Domitian, Ida, and Althea. And so with Domitian, he picks up very quickly that this man is a danger to him. Um, And one of my favorite little things is... Uh, the scene where Domitian captures Ivan and Maddie, Ivan draws Domitian's attention to himself um, because in the partnership between Ivan and Maddie, that's sort of how they work. Ivan draws the attention, Maddie's the sleight of hand. Um, 
and which of course is very relevant to what happens in the book itself. And so Ivan draws Domitian's attention. Domitian goes, you're the dangerous one. Domitian puts him in the super locked cell, which gives Maddie a chance to escape. Um, and so Ivan figures that out within minutes of meeting Domitian, if less, I think Domitian says a few things. And that is really what is fun to me about Ivan um, is that he will pick that up about people. He will find the right way to manipulate them and he will just do it. Um, even if it's morally horrifying. Um, and so with Domitian, who's very susceptible to that sort of manipulation, um, Ivan uses him until the point where Domitian snaps, essentially, because Domitian does not, Domitian's very orderly sense of right and wrong does not match well with Ivan's freer sense of morals and his um, disorderly way of communicating. Mm-hmm. Um, with Ida... Ivan's goal is to stay alive because Ida is the one who ultimately has the say over whether he lives or dies. Um, and he picks up throughout the course of their interrogation what she's really interested in, which is less getting the information and more beating him. And so his interaction with her becomes increasingly less about what he knows and more about her making him admit what he knows and that is that was very fun to write and also uh, kind of disturbing because it gets to the darker and darker, darker parts of their characters. Um, and with Althea, Ivan picks up quickly that what she's motiv- motivated by is concern for her ship. And he not only has information that Ida wants, Ida wants to know who the terrorist is, the Maltinos, um, but Ivan has information that Althea wants because Ivan knows what Maddie did to the computer. And so he holds that information away from these two women and makes them go after it because he has information and he's not going to give it up without trading for more power. And so from Ida's case, it becomes a sort of battle of wills. From Domitian's case, it becomes Domitian dealing with it, dealing with it, dealing with it, snapping. And in Althea's case, she develops a genuine empathy for him because Ivan is, he's not just a machine he's a mm-hmm. person and he has sympathetic motivations even if he's also kind of a terrible person um and so the relationship between Althea and ivan ends up being sort of the most genuine even though he is using her the whole way through which was also fun to write yeah i mean it's interesting you you say that that's the most genuine even though he was using her i mean i think that <laughs> says a lot about the nature of all the relationships in the book Yes. which are that they are all multi-layered, complex, uh, strange, strange. I guess like all relationships are yeah. in general, but hopefully uh, less murder. Yeah, hopefully less murder. That's what we'll uh, hang our hat on. <laughs> so let's talk about Ida. I mean, Ida was again this this really interesting character. She was not there right at the beginning. She got brought in as a higher level intelligence agent after they captured. Ivan and you kind of drop these hints throughout the book that she didn't really feel emotions or or maybe she felt emotions but she couldn't empathize well with others and and that's not what drove her you know it's it seemed like really what drove her again and again was being proven right just like you said about the interaction between Ivan and her where Ivan realized this and she wrote 
you wrote <laughs> that for her that the, the best kind of glory anyone could have was, was being right, especially when everyone else doubted her. And she eventually was proven right, but, uh, but it was too late <laughs> for her. <laughs> so I, I thought that was so interesting because uh, I see that in myself and, and in friends as well, right? Is this, this kind of relentless drive to be correct, to be right? Especially now when you can look stuff up right away and your your rightness can be confirmed <laughs> immediately. I, I think it's just something that, that a lot of people have. And I, I was just wondering why you thought that was a character trait that that was so that's so plentiful. I mean and and that why you wanted to include that for Ida and then you know, finally it, eventually she was proven right, but it's like does that does that make everything else that happened okay? You know, she was pretty mean to Ivan. Yeah, when I when I said earlier that hopefully I won't agree with Ida again, um, that was uh, terribly naive of me to forget because I agree with her all the time. It's just that she's a horrible person, mm. and I don't like that about myself. But, of course, that's why I liked her as a character. Um, she definitely feels emotion, but she doesn't feel other people's emotion. Mm -hmm. And so something, what I really did with Ida, one of the ways in which she contrasts so dramatically with Althea is that um, Althea has an overabundance of empathy. She empathizes with the computer. She empathizes with Ivan. She, she empathizes, mm -hmm. whereas Ida does not. Ida is a sociopath, um, which I think Ivan actually says aloud eventually once he comes to know her, but she is in fact a sociopath. Um, which was, I mentioned earlier that one of the fun things to me in writing it was the difference between how Ida reacts to Ivan versus how the reader reacts to Ivan. Um, and that was largely because um, when I was writing it, um, Ivan, who is in fact a very sympathetic character, he has, he he's a terrible person, but he also has good motivations and very mm -hmm. sympathetic motivations. Um, and he's also being tortured. So he has moments of weakness and a reader um, or at least I as a reader would have a moment of sympathy for him in those moments. But Ida, every time I wrote Ida, wherever there would be a moment of sympathy or empathy, I removed it, mm. which created this um, interesting sort of character who had a sort of uh, hollowness to her. Um, uh, there's a recurring image of a hollow dark space at the very center of things in the Anaki. It's the black hole. Uh, for Ivan, it's a metaphor for his depression, and for Ida, um, it's her sociopathy. Um, so she feels emotions very strongly, primarily negative ones, but she doesn't empathize with other people. And she gets a lot of pleasure out of being right, um, as do I. <laughs> <laughs> and so that ultimately is what her interrogation of Ivan is about. She doesn't care who the terrorist is. She doesn't care about saving people. She doesn't care about the government. She cares about being right. Um, which of course is her undoing. If she had uh, not made it quite so personal and about her, um, what happened to her probably would not have happened. Um, as for if her being right makes it all worth it, um, sort of, and does the end justify the means question, uh, for Ida herself, maybe. Um, I don't know that she could ever have really conceptualized the idea that she might die, um, except that one moment of terror that she has when the Anaki is malfunctioning. Um, 
So from her perspective, being right might in fact be worth it all along. But from the perspective of other characters, you know, she gets the information she needs, but it's too late to do anything. And in fact, everything that she has done has only made the situation worse, even though she doesn't know it. Um, so it was definitely, definitely not worth it. <laughs> yeah. Huh. All right. So, yeah, the, the ship was, a, I would argue, a character unto its own, right? I mean, Ananke just was behaving strangely throughout the book, and it's very difficult for... Althea to fix the ship, and Althea gave it attributes of uh, of a character. She cared about it, and I thought, it, you know, as as the book went on and, and towards the end, it had this messianistic, messianic. I, never I know think it's say. messianic. Messianic. I'm gonna go with that. Okay, messianic zeal, uh, but through a lens of science, which was so interesting to me. Right? <laughs> it, it, it said math is a miracle language that answers back when you phrase a question. And to me, this raised this question of, of an idea of, of religion of science, mm-hmm. where people are starting to move away from religion as it might have been known 500, 1,000 years ago and headed more towards the idea of science being the, the one with the answer. And, yeah, I guess I'm curious about the extent you think that's, that's happening and that influenced what happened in the book and, and whether you feel like that's a good or bad or neutral thing. Um, in the case of the book, uh, that sort of connection between science and religion happened partly because I was writing it when I was in the middle of physics hell. Um, and partly because, uh, for Ananke, of course, that's way she, that's the way she would see it. Mm-hmm. Um, she is literally designed for a very particular, sort of scientific research so everything that she knows is filtered through that lens um in terms of science being a religion i feel like uh once you try to turn science into a religion it stops being science Mm -hmm. um i feel like there are people who treat science like a religion but primarily there are people who see science as a competing religion to their own um so I don't know that I would say that that's a good or a bad thing. I feel like it's one of those things that just is. Mm-hmm. Um. That fair enough. So yeah, so that's that's kind of wrapping up the questions I had about the book itself. Was there? I always like to ask if there's anything else that you wanted people to get, to learn, to take away. Is there anything else that you want people to walk with after they read the book that we haven't talked about? Um. Be nice to Siri. <laughs> Noted. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. Um, it's uh, sort of interesting to me because the, uh, the, the core relationship of the book and of the series, um, well, there are two core relationships, and one is Althea and her ship, um, and the other is a relationship that uh, uh, we really didn't even really talk about, which I think is interesting because it's it's sort of underneath the surface of most of the book um and that's the relationship between ivan and matty mm-hmm. um which drives a lot of what you don't know is happening <laughs> yeah so um i don't know it's interesting to me because as the, a writer i felt like that was one of the two major um driving relationships in the book uh and yet it it manages to exist 
so sneakily beneath. Yeah, yeah. Well, you definitely don't realize or understand unless, I mean, you. I think actually, well, maybe you might, because you dropped some hints here and there, but it, it wasn't quite clear to me exactly what was happening in regards to Maddie. And we don't have to give away everything, <laughs> but, you know, he, he is at the beginning and end of the book and and in, and appears throughout in other ways. Um, so that's an interesting point, because, yeah, it's not something that I was conscious of, because you don't hear the name referenced a lot sometimes during the interrogation, but... In fact... He's um, he he there as a, as a reason for being, maybe, for Ivan. Yes, and in fact, Ivan takes care to not mention him during the interrogation. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is the first book in a trilogy. What what can you tell us about the next two books? Um, so the next two books are sequels, but they're also uh, almost companions to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, Supernova is the second one, and Radiate is the third. Um, and Supernova really follows um, two plot lines. One mm-hmm. is Althea and her creation, the Anaki. And the other is the Maltinos, the terrorist that Ida was trying to discover the identity of um, as the Maltinos interacts with her creation, which is this revolution. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's sort of about these two women who are incredibly different and the ways that their situation and their creation is sort of spiraling out of control, Um, which was fun. (laughs) because they suffer um, and because they have a lot in common, even though they are two diametrically opposite human beings. Um, And the third book, Radiate, is about primarily about two characters who are not so much in Supernova um, physically, although they're a very strong presence in Supernova, much the way that the Maltinos is a very strong presence in Lightless, even though she doesn't necessarily appear. Or does she? Um, <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. But uh, Radiate is largely about Ivan and Maddie, um, who are on a journey of their own, which is uh, s- uh, sort of the way Supernova is big. Radiate is sort of small. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are trying desperately to fix the things that they've done wrong and also escape the things they've done wrong. Mm. Um, And so there's a lot of conflict there. And that is about the way the whole universe is sort of falling apart at that point. And of course, yeah. um, Well, the whole solar system at least, Okay. which is their whole universe. Um, It's about the way everything is falling apart and their role in that. Um, and what you do when you are at the center of something that has already gone beyond your control. And how do you make right what cannot be made right? And also, there's a deadly ship chasing you down. Uh-oh. That thinks you're its daddy. So. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, I'm definitely going to have to read the next two because I'm already hooked. Especially, I'm curious to hear more of the interactions between Ivan and Maddie, I think. Because that, that was some, that was like a... Just a juicy fruit that we saw, <laughs> li- just it got a, a little bite of, and then didn't get a chance to see more. So, yes, that'd be great. Awesome. All right. Well, so let's do the thunder round, which is just like some fun <laughs> getting to know you questions that All I right. like to end with, and then uh, we'll call it a day. Sound good? Sounds good. Okay. So, what's your favorite food and/or drink? 
Food is pasta. I don't care what's on it. Awesome. I don't even care if it's cooked. I love pasta. <laughs> Raw pasta? Ra- I will do it. I will do it. Don't test me. Um, and drink um, scotch. Scotch. Okay. So neat rocks. One rock. Neat. Neat. Always okay. neat. This is an important question. <laughs> it is. Okay. Fair. Where's your favorite place you've ever been? Uh, New York. New York City. Oh, we're here. Yeah. We're in it. We're in it. It's this great. So I'm so happy. <laughs> All right. That's awesome. Uh, was there anything that made it your favorite? Um, I don't know. Um, I like that there are a lot of people around. I don't like people very much, but I like that mm. there are a lot of them around. Okay. Um, I like that there is art everywhere. Um, I can take a subway to nine different immersive theater productions and go to one at any given point. Mm-hmm. Um, I can go see operas. I can go to museums. Um, I can go see a naked performance of Hamlet in the park, True. which I did. True. Um, so I I really like New York City. All right. Me too. That's why <laughs> I'm here. So. Oh, good. Yeah. And uh, finally, if you could wave a magic wand and change any one thing, what would it be and why? Can I say the president? You can say whatever you want. Um, actually, probably what I'd do is I would wave a magic wand and uh, make me a trust fund baby so that mm. I wouldn't have to work a day job and I could just write all the time. Mm-hmm. And also have a like enormous apartment with okay. a dog. I'm in. Yeah, I'm right? coming can over we for do the that? party. Yeah, exactly. Sounds Where's your great. wand? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> unfortunately not here. Uh, All right, great. Well, the book is Lightless by C.A. Higgins. Caitlin, it was a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks so much. Same to you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Read, Learn, Live. If you liked it, tell a friend and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. If you hated it, tell a friend and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. And so it goes. (laughs) 